chapter 11, verses 8 to 16. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, whose past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so, from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He is preparing a city for them. Good morning. How are we? We good? Good? In case I haven't met you, uh, my name is Jonathan, and it's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at WDBC. And we are going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11 this morning, verses 8 to 16. Uh, I want to begin with an apology to the people who are watching online. The slides are not going to be available uh, if you're watching online. If you're here, hey, you get the slides. Uh, <laughs> um, we had a bit of a technical glitch this morning, uh, and uh, partially, you know, partially me trying to get them in late, but also things not working when you need them to. So, uh, but uh, so my apologies there, but you should have them on the screen uh, behind you. Chris is going to be driving the car for me. Thanks, Chris. All right. Uh, we are in the midst of a series through the book of Hebrews called Seeing Jesus, and we're using that language of sight because in the book of Hebrews, that is the language that is mirrored with faith. Faith is, is viewed as, as a, a perception, a seeing of the unseen. And as Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, it is still Jesus that we are called to gaze upon, who we're called to see, even though we don't see him with our physical eyes at the moment. We're asked to see him with eyes of faith. Faith is our trust, our pledge, our fidelity to God, our holding in tension, his promise as we continue in obedient faith. Last week we saw that God rewards our trust in him. We looked at the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 11. And in those verses, we learned some about the nature of faith, some things about how it relates to God and how, how it helps us draw to God. And we, looked, we learned that faith is trusting in a God that we cannot see. This week, we are going to be looking at verses 8 to 16, and we're going to consider seeking the unseen city. 
seeking the unseen city. There's many, many uh, legends and myths and stories that have been written throughout the ages about seeking and finding a particular city or founding a particular city. It's a city, uh, you know, wh whether it's it's that dream that's helping people to cross into the new world or, or whether it's uh, simply a place where one can be truly at home and at rest. This is a part of almost humanity's experience, universal experience from the beginning of time. But we're told here that faith, true faith, in, in, the, in, uh, in the terms that the Bible uses, faith is something that finds its home in the city of God. To have faith, biblically speaking, saving faith means to find your home in the place where God dwells. That's the big idea this morning. Faith finds, it home, finds its home in the city of God. Which leads into our big question today, which is something that I want you to be thinking about as we go through. And that question is, where is your home? Where is your home? This is a very relevant question. Uh, I can say that because it's a question that, uh, that I often ponder here as someone who's living in a country that he was not born in. Uh, I know some of you, that's your experience. You've, you've emigrated to Australia. You have, uh, you've been trying to make a life here. Uh, some of you have been born and raised in the Hawkesbury. And this is all you've ever known of home. Uh, so where is your home is not necessarily the same question of where were you born or where were you raised? But where is your home is, is another way of saying, where do you belong? I want you to ponder that. Where do I belong? Cheers made the, you know, the sitcom Cheers made, made that opening theme song very popular. You, you want to go where everybody knows your name. And the, the whole framework of that show was that you might be a busy professional or someone who was down on their luck, but this bar would be your home because you belong there. Where is your home? Where is the place that you belong? These are questions that are a part of the inner makeup of a human being. If you rob a person of this sense of home, even from a young age, you can watch and trace the effects that it has on a person as they go through their life. Even if you leave someone in the same physical or geographical situation in life, but you take away that sense of belonging, you take away that sense of being known, you removed the, the, the love and acceptance that's necessary, you can again, do great damage to an individual. And it says something about who we are as people, that we were made to dwell in community. But there's something about these communities that we live in, this world that we live in, that is not quite home. The context of Hebrews 8 to 16 is really God showing us how faith was operating in the life of Abraham, his servant. So if you're probably familiar with Hebrews chapter 11 and, and how through chapter 11, there's a number of different servants of God that are highlighted. And uh, there's special focus here in verses 8 to 16 that's placed upon Abraham. 
specifically because Abraham is, is often referred to as sort of the father of the faith, the, the forefather in faith. Not that people living before Abraham didn't exhibit faith, they did, but Abraham in the scriptures is the first one who's whose faith really is highlighted, is praised, and is commended. Now, in terms of where we're at in the context of the book of Hebrews, you need to remember that Hebrews is an address given to an audience of Christians, of believers, who the writer believes have grown a bit complacent. They're feeling a bit lethargic in their faith. Rather than leaning and pressing into God in Christ, they are sort of leaning and and, and sort of teetering back into the world. And there's this heightened language throughout the book of Hebrews, this, these sort of two poles, if you will. And, and there's a heightened language about all that Christ has done for us and the value and the great worth that is placed upon the salvation that he gives, this great salvation. And on the other hand, on this other pole is, is the urgency with which the speaker is saying to his hearers, saying, watch out, be careful, you're about to fall away. And so the book can almost feel like it gives you a bit of whiplash going back and forth between these two extremes. Look at this great wonder that you have. Look at what may happen if you walk away. And this is entirely appropriate of people who've heard the truth but are growing slow or dull of hearing. They've heard the message but they're growing tired of the message. They've heard the message but they're starting to not cling to that message in faith and it's really just becoming some sort of content that, that, that they retain. It's, it's a, a, a box-ticking exercise of spirituality. And so the writer takes chapters 8, 9, and 10 to really spell out for us the, the significance of Jesus' offering of himself the death and the resurrection, the work of Christ, the significance of that and how Christ entered into heaven and he now is seated in heaven at the right hand of God. This sense of his ministerial work, his, his mediating work is done and he's, he stands there, or he sits there, excuse me, and he now just intercedes for us. And so the, the doors to heaven have been opened. We've been given access into the kingdom of God. And it's in the process of of exhorting these hearers to say, make use of the access that you have, that the writer begins to bring in this language of confidence. And he says, your confidence, your faith is great, it's very valuable. Don't throw it away. And that is the reason why we have Hebrews chapter 11. He's exhorting them to hang on to their faith, to continue in faith, to remember what they've endured before, and to show them that faith carries with it a great reward. And now you get chapter 11, which is really like holding faith up like it's a diamond or a prism. It's like holding faith up to light and watching the various and the manifold displays of what faith looks like, true faith in God in a world. And there are things that are common, but there are things that are very diverse. And the effect of all of this, looking at all these different ways that faith is played out in the life of God's people, it shows one thing, but it shows many things. And the effect of all of this is for the the listeners to say, wow, I must continue in faith. 
He's holding up the value and the virtue of faith. So that's where we're at. That's the backdrop. That's why we go into the life of Abraham here. But I want you to note, you know, we have on the slide the context, you know, God, in this passage, we're going to hear about God calling Abram out of her. We're going to hear about God's promise to bless, God giving Abraham an heir, God crediting Abraham as righteous, all these things. But the focus here shifts slightly. It's not sort of what is faith and, and sort of the value of faith. But here the focus is to go that next layer down and to say, what's the mindset of somebody who lives by faith? As we look at our outline, we're going to see that, that having faith or having trust in God, it's, it's really like having a migrant mentality. And this is displayed in four ways. You're going to see that faith responds to invitation. That faith relinquishes social comfort. That faith receives promise and power. And finally, that faith reveals heavenly hope. So this is what we're going to look at this morning. But it all fits into this mentality that Abraham had when he was called by God and how he lived out his life. Now, if you think about a, a migrant you can have all sorts of different reasons to, to become a migrant. There's a lot of people who were forced into migration because of what's happening in the Ukraine in response to the attacks from Russia. Hundreds of thousands of people have become migrants, not of their own choice. You can have migration that's, that, that, that occurs through economic or, or, or climate factors. Famines and so forth can lead to migration. The book of Ruth begins with a migration. But here, what's, what's unique about this kind of mig migration is Abraham goes on a migration of his own choice. It's a voluntary migration. And this sets it apart as a type of migration that is grounded in hope. That's what we're going to look at today. Let's pray. And ask God to bless us. Father, would you open your word for us today? Help us to be not just passive listeners to the truth, but to, to engage it and let our hearts be gripped with it. We pray that your spirit would have his way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Follow with me as we go. We're first going to see that faith responds. Faith responds. In verse 8, we read, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. What faith is doing here in this verse is saying, faith responds. Faith specifically meets God's call with obedience and it goes forth into the unknown. Faith is responsive. You do not have faith. I do not have faith if we encounter the word of God and remain unchanged. Full stop. If the word of God, the, the, the call, the summons, the invitation of Christ does not move us to some sort of response, then we are simply deceiving ourselves. The Bible talks about two kinds of hearing. There are those who simply hear the word and there are those who do the word. This is the wise and the foolish builder parable that Jesus told. They both heard the message. They both heard the words of Jesus, but only one responded. Here, Abram 
is met with the call to leave and he goes. This is marvelous. Notice for Abraham, this invitation, it meant a departure. A lot of us have, have been taught or, or have maybe encountered this kind of evangelism which says, you know, Jesus wants to come into your life. And I get where that comes from. That comes from Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Let me in. Now, first of all, you need to remember that's, that's written to a church. So he's talking to a community that has somehow found Jesus on the outside. But we hear this, let Jesus into your life. The problem with that, if, if you simply look at it that way, it, 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 can, it can lead to this perspective that, that God's call is really, he just wants to kind of come and hang out with you. He wants, to, he wants to sit on the back porch with you and, and just be your buddy or your pal. Now, you can be a friend of God, absolutely. That, that's a, Abraham, Moses is a friend of God. Jesus says, I, now, I no longer call you my servants, I call you my friends. It is something to be a friend of God, but, but the call of God is meant to provoke in the person of faith some sort of response. It may be a response of praise. It may be a response of, of, of joy. It could be a response of lament. It, it ought to be obedience if there's action to it. So Abraham, he receives this call to go and to leave. It's an invitation. Now, when we think about the story of Abraham, we think, we sort of tend to think of the whole thing, but, but the reality is that Abraham only received more revelation as he continued in obedience. When he got the call to leave to Ur, he wasn't told, well, and so I'm going to give you this son miraculously, and you're going to get all this stuff, and, and here's where you're going to be. And no, he didn't get the whole picture. But faith responds with obedience. There's an invitation, a willingness to trust. And notice, trust has to overcome a lack of certainty. Now, don't get it twisted. <laughs> faith is never meant to be an excuse for utterly ridiculous folly. Oftentimes, if you read scripture, you'll see that, that when God calls people to do what, what, what seems incredibly ridiculous at the time, he often backs it up with extremely undeniable, powerful revelation. But trust overcomes a lack of certainty. Can I ask you for a moment, how much of your life is lived simply on the basis of what you understand to be certain? Put another way, what have you had to trust God for this week? Has there been an element in your life this week where you had to lean into God and say, God, I don't know how this is gonna turn out. I don't know that I'm going to be comfortable or, or secure or, or happy even. I don't know which way this is going to go. And I'm going to put myself in a vulnerable position simply because you said so. It's really easy to become comfortable. So faith, faith is, is responsive. There, uh, as F.F. Bruce would say, there's a, there's a readiness there. Abram is called and he responds. The second way that faith is 
is operating here, the mindset of faith. Not only is it responsive, but, but it's a mindset that's ready to relinquish. Faith relinquishes. Look at verses 9 and 10. By faith, he made his home in a promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abram has to leave a society, and if you follow his, his, his journey, it's, it's almost the more isolated he gets, the closer he gets to God, and the, and the more that gets revealed to him. So when he simply moves out of Ur and just goes a little bit further away, he moves with his, with his father and his other relatives. He's there for a while. It's not till after his father dies and Abram moves again. God continues to speak to him. And then later when Abram separates from Lot, and that's when God says, every place you put your foot, I'm going to give you this place as an inheritance. All of this is a letting go. It's a leaving. It's a relinquishing. It's almost as if God's trying to tell us, you can't hold on to me and all your comfort. You can't have a death grip on your own security and also have a death grip on Christ. Or to put it Jesus' way, you cannot serve God and mammon. Faith has, has in this component of it a, a, a letting go, a relinquishing. Part of my position is it puts me in a, in a place where, where I counsel, I'm counseling couples. And I, in this process of counseling, you, you inevitably get to a place where, where the two parties are, are, are kind of wondering, can we trust each other this much? And, and it's as if they get to this place where they say, well, to go any further, I'm going to have to let go. And that's when I say, yeah, <laughs> you do. <laughs> you do. If you're going to love somebody like that, if you're going to put yourself in a vulnerable position and you are letting go, God calls Abram to leave his family, his homeland, his neighborhood, his country, his people, everything. And he does. He's willing. This is what a migrant does. A migrant embraces vulnerability. It's, it's a temporary vulnerability. He says, I, I'm going to come under threat, under these conditions, because, because I'm in transit. You also relinquish your minority, your, your, sorry, your majority view. Anytime you step outside of, of of your homeland. I don't care whether it's, it's, it's the cool group in high school or whether it's your, uh, you know, all, all the cool work colleagues that you want to be. The moment you, you begin to pull away, you begin to respond in faith to God, you're, you're, you're relinquishing your social capital. That's why what we're doing here this morning is so important. We are the assembly of gathered travelers. <laughs> We've been called, collected, 
Notice that impermanence and transience are markers of this life. This is what, this is what Peter said in the beginning of his epistle. So trust, trust in God enables this bold step to leave behind society's comforts for God. Jesus was very upfront with his disciples about this, wasn't he? He said, quite plainly, he said, in this world you will have trouble. You don't belong to this world. In fact, as his apostles would go on to say, if the world sees you coming and walking in the door and the world's high-fiving you and slapping you on the back and saying, oh, we, you know, I'm so glad you're here. Hey, you know, doing the finger guns. Hey, there you are. Hey, look at us. If that's how the world treats you, if you're friends with the world, the apostles say, that's, that's an indication you're an enemy of God. See, because this place, this existence, this, this age, this, this age that is ending, in process of ending, is, is a place, is a, is a society, if you will, is a city, if you will, that is not welcoming to God. Humanity's rebellion stretches far and wide. You can see it virtually every corner. And so to walk with God in this world is to relinquish your social capital, the familiarity, the sense of belonging that the world would give to you. And I want to tell you, if you're caught right now in this place of, I really want to feel comfortable in the world, but I also really, really want to follow Jesus, let me just encourage you, he takes care of his people. There's nothing the world can give you in its society that can replace the care, the communion that Christ gives his people. There's no amount of popularity, no amount of worldly reputation, no amount of earthly success, no amount of mutual understanding between human beings that can compare to the richness of the inheritance that the saints are going to have, to, to the weight of glory that is being reserved for us, for the closeness of the Holy Spirit, for the indwelling of the presence of God, who is a constant companion you see, in the calculus of faith, God's promise outweighs the present dangers. And so us as a church, we're a, we're a people, we're a community that's, that's on pilgrimage. So we've seen in Abraham's life, when he gets the call, he responds. And faith has this readiness to respond. Faith also has this willingness to relinquish and to leave society's comforts behind. Thirdly, we'll see that faith receives. Now, you got to be very careful as you're reading the text here because the people described here, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, they, they receive things, but the text is very careful to say they don't receive, they don't receive the outcome of the promise. They receive a promise, but they don't receive the outcome of the promise. Verses 11 to 12. 
And by faith, even Sarah, or and even Sarah herself through faith, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children. Literally, the text reads, received power to conceive. Received power to conceive because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, now back to Abram, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Faith receives promise and power. God responds to these things with his infallible word and with his incomparable strength. Notice that God sustains his pilgrim people in the promise by virtue of his miraculous power. Now, in the text, we see here that faith precedes a divine encounter. Faith precedes a genuine divine encounter. This is why people who want to rule out faith having any connection with healing are wrong. You'll read in the book of Acts when when Peter and John are entering the temple and there's the beggar standing outside and he's he's asking for money. Peter would recall, he, he would recount, seeing that he had faith to be healed. Faith precedes the divine encounter. Jesus, we're told, didn't do many miracles in Nazareth. Why? Because the people were, were mired in unbelief. But note a few more things. God's power is at work in accordance with his promise and his purpose, not ours. God's power will be will be displayed, will be revealed, will be encountered in accordance with his promise and in accordance with his plan, not necessarily in accordance with our agenda, which this is where the faith healers are wrong. You see, if you limit, if you limit God's power simply to an expression of faith, then you get the sort of people who go around saying, well, the reason you're not healed is because you didn't believe. You see, there must be an accounting for the purposes and the plans of God and the promises of God. I'm sure there were more beggars at the temple. I'm sure there were more people, there were more people who needed money. But the healing of the man at that time and the, and the state of his heart and his readiness to receive the message which, res, which resulted in the crippled man leaping and dancing and going through the whole temple, praising God for joy, was right in lockstep with the purposes of God. The proliferation of the gospel and the spread of the church. Now, if you, if you jump into Abraham and Sarah's story, there's a lot in their story, a lot of times when they're not seeming to have great faith. Which again is a problem if you speak of faith in terms of amounts. Well, do do you have this much faith, that much faith? It's much better to conceive of faith as resting in an object or resting in a person. And while there were times when Abraham and Sarah did not show a trust in God, the whole course of their journey revealed that that was in fact their true position, to rest in God's promise. And so Isaac is born, and, and, and this, this woman whose, whose womb was barren, this, this man who 
should have been past childbearing age, they, through the power of God, are given an heir. Faith here reclines in certainty upon God's word. This is really important. I want you to, to, to think for a moment about, about how your faith plays out in your life. Many of us go through times when we, we encounter a challenge or an obstacle and it seems bigger than, bigger than us and it's at that point in time we, we go to God and we say, God, can you get me through this obstacle? Can you get me over this hill or, or, or around this mountain? And we are looking at that and we're saying, God, I know your, your capability exceeds my own capacity and I want you, I want you to do this. Many of us will become discouraged when things don't turn out the way that we think they should turn out. What I'm getting at is you need to hold your confidence in God entirely separate with your vision and expectation of how things will work out. God says his ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts higher than your thoughts. Who could have envisioned sending, a, sending the the child of promise, Joseph, being sold as a slave by his own brothers into Egypt, which would turn out to be the preservation of, of God's people. Who would have even thought of that? Nobody. And yet God was making good on his promise. You see, we need to hold our expectation of God's ability to deliver on what he has said different and separate from our own conception of how that will work out. If you push those things together, if you try to mash them together, then what you'll find yourself is you'll be a roller coaster Christian. So when things are happening the way you think they should happen, you'll be screaming and cheering, God, you're so amazing. Look at all these things you can do. And when it's not going the way that you think it should happen, you'll be saying, oh, I don't know. You'll stop praying. You'll, you'll be wondering if, it's even, if there's even any God who's listening. You'll be wondering if God's actually going to be there. And while faith, while faith may precede this miraculous encounter with God, we can't lose sight of the fact that faith itself is a gift. You see, many of us, we get this narrow-sighted view of, of our relationship with God and we said, oh, God suddenly became real when I started believing. But actually, he's been real before you even believed. He's actually been working before you even picked up a Bible, before you could form a sentence. You're only here because he chose you to be here. Your calling and being drawn into the kingdom is a work of God's prevenient grace. It's God moving. And so to the point where Paul could write in Ephesians chapter 2 that faith itself is a gift. You see? We need to be careful not to limit not to limit our trust in God based upon our own understanding. In fact, Proverbs chapter three throws these things in the opposite direction. Proverbs chapter three, verse five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Be careful. 
Finally, faith reveals something. Specifically, faith reveals our identity, it reveals our hope, and ultimately it reveals our citizenship. Verses 13 to 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Again, don't get it twisted. They got a promise and they got power, but they hadn't received what was promised, if that makes sense, in all its fullness. And here the writer is acknowledging that even as Abram's walking around Canaan, the thing that Abraham was promised was not simply the land of Israel. It's, it's, he's promised a lasting kingdom, which he had not received yet. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. It makes sense, right? If you say, I'm on pilgrimage, I, I, I'm sojourning for Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through, as the old spiritual says. If this is what we profess, we're acknowledging that we're looking for something greater. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, Abram, as he's walking around Canaan, as he's dwelling in tents, living this stranger, foreigner life, he's not saying, well, what I'm really trying to do is I'm working out how to get my way back to Ur. (laughs) I'm trying to get my way back to the Chaldeans. That's not what Abram is saying. Instead, verse 16, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Literally, a better city. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Faith reveals our identity, our hope, and our citizenship. So again, if you think about sort of being, being a migrant, being, being in migration, this, this sense of leaving your home and journeying to the destination... It involves have readiness to respond to the call. It involves a relinquishing, a separation, a a letting go. It involves being sustained along the way by God's promise and by his power. But ultimately, this faith becomes a confession. This faith becomes a proclamation. And so our faith testifies that we don't belong here. And our faith reveals that we're hoping for something better. This is why there's, it's so sad when the church panders to the world and wants to just be like the world. It's because we're, under, we're cutting the legs out from our, from our confession. Our, our, our whole testimony, our whole repentance is built on this idea that we cannot find our belonging here. We cannot have a right relationship with God. We cannot have a right relationship with other people. Repentance is, in one way of looking at it, repentance is saying, I give up. I can't do it. I need to find the better way. I need to leave. 
our faith testifies that we don't belong. If people treat you like an outsider because you're a Christian, welcome that. If people look at you askance and uh, as if, say, you're weird, you're different, embrace that. You are. If, if people are complaining or, or seem like they're trying to, to sell the virtues of their lifestyle to you, well, that's because they recognize you haven't bought it. Don't be confused when all this stuff happens. Don't be confused when the world tries to squeeze you into its mold, as Paul would write in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Faith reveals our sincere hope. You and I living out of our trust in God, it cannot, it cannot help but testify to our heavenly hope. So again, Christian, as you're going through your life, as, as you're going about your, your work day, as you're doing things different from the world, realize it's going, to, it's going to tell people that you are longing for something different and something better. It will have that effect. Peter says to expect it. He says every person's supposed to have an answer ready for the hope that lies within you. Why do you have to have an answer at the ready? Peter realizes people are going to ask you, why are you doing the things you're doing? Why are you not sleeping around? Why are you not hoarding your money? Why are you devoting your Sunday morning on a beautiful day, not to going and sitting at the beach, but instead coming to gather with other fellow Christians? Why are you doing this? It's going to put you in a position, they're going to ask you this question, and you're going to have, it's going to show what your hope is. If you don't know what you're hoping for, if you've forgotten the, the beautiful picture of the country that, that you're going to, the homeland, this, the city of God, if, if that's not sweet to you, you're going to struggle as a disciple. The man who found the treasure in the field and sold everything that he had so he could go and buy the field, it looked crazy. Why? Because the people didn't know the treasure was there, but he knew the treasure was there. And so he had an opportunity everywhere he went when they said, look, what happened to you? You used to drive the BMW. You used to have this fancy job. What, what's going on? Why are, you, why are you moving out to Whoop Whoop? Well, there's treasure out there in this field. If you forget that there's treasure there, it's not going to make any sense. If you don't have hope in what you're following God for, you're going to struggle as a disciple. You'll turn back. Faith becomes our pledge, if you will, our, our troth, I think, as, as the old English would say, our, our pledge to heaven's allegiance. We're saying, I belong to heaven. Now, Americans, I've noticed in this country, get, get joked, uh, get, get killed for uh, how patriotic we are. And, uh, you know, there's... Uh, uh, Having grown up in America, you'll, you'll, if you get delight out of this joke and it's another reason to pile on Americans, go for it. Just don't, just don't lose my point. But every, every class that we were in in primary school, it would begin with the Pledge of Allegiance. I could say it to you today. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. I remember it. They made us pledge it every single day. You showed up to class. It's how you started the day. I think about those words now. And now as an adult, 
What I was saying was, when push comes to shove, my allegiance is here. My allegiance is to this flag. I come under this banner. And I begin to understand why every time Americans go elsewhere, people from other countries look at you like, you're this weird patriot. Can I tell you the freedom that I found in having to leave America, but also in just recognizing that I'm a citizen of heaven and that's my first citizenship. Before anything else, I'm a citizen of heaven. Before, before the, the country that I live in, the job that I work, before even any other relationship, that's my city. That's the kingdom I belong to. That's the colors that I fight for. I conform my life to its standards. You see, God is preparing a society for these people. And isn't that a wonderful picture? If you think about a city, a city is, is a place of, of diversity, a place of industry and creativity, a place where the best is brought together for the, for the flourishing of all its inhabitants. That's what a city's meant to be. And God is preparing a society like that where there will be a unified vision and goal of righteousness amidst a diverse group of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And their ingathering will be nothing but joy and righteousness and beauty. And God is organizing this. But note, first of all, that God gladly will associate his name with us. Listen to this, verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. How serious is the name of God? It was one of the commands, one of the 10 commandments. If you took the Lord's name in vain, you've broken one of the 10 words. You've broken the covenant of God if you took his name in vain. That's how serious the name of God is. But throughout scripture, when God identifies himself in future generations, he would identify himself as saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Think about that. For God to put his name with your name. Who is the almighty creator? He's the God of Warren. He's the God of Bill. He's the God of Phil, of Gwen. Think about that. This is the judge. God says, he looks at these people and he says, you belong to me. I'll put my name with yours. Isn't this what Jesus said? Whoever acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge before my Father in heaven and all his angels. Whoever doesn't acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge him before my Father and all the angels. You see how it works. You and I are proving our allegiance right now. We are showing where we want to be, which is what I love C.S. Lewis in his, in his wonderful poetic way. 
I believe it's him. If I, if I misquote him, I apologize. But he would say, there's no one who will end up in hell who didn't want to be there. And there'll be no one in heaven who didn't want to be there. You see, faith, faith will set you in motion to the place where you want to belong. So, faith responds to the invitation of God. Are we ready? Are we ready when the word of God comes and he says, I want you to go here. I want you to do this. I want you to move. I want you to let go of that. I want you to press into this way. I want you to hold on. Whatever it is, are we, is there a readiness when the word of God comes to respond in obedience? Secondly, are we ready to relinquish? Relinquish social comfort. Relinquish our own control. Relinquish even the dreams that we may have had and the dreams that feel and felt so right for us, but maybe we have had to let die because those were not God's dreams. Are we ready to receive, to receive the promise and power? Faith encounters God in his word and through his spirit. And finally, faith reveals our heavenly hope. So we should not be surprised when it's on display for people and when they ask us about it. Now you say, that's a wonderful pledge to God. That's a wonderful pledge of our allegiance. And, and, and the writer to the Hebrews is saying, Abraham, he lived his life. You, you, could, you could summarize his life as saying, he was looking for us. He was looking for the city of God. to a group of believers who were growing complacent and were thinking about walking back into the old rituals or walking back into the, into the world, he says, do you want to be known as a people who are looking for a heavenly city? Faith finds its home in the city of God. It should be comforting in one way because it makes us realize that, you know what, this isn't all that, this isn't it. And it should remind us that there is glory to come. And as Jared and uh, Alana come forward to, to lead us in another song, I want you to realize that as God invites us into his kingdom, he hasn't left us without a pledge. And so seeing Christ, it, it really means receiving God's pledge. Jesus Christ is, is sort of God saying, I want you. I want you in this city. I came to bring you in. He has approved your visa. He's given you your citizenship papers. And when we see Christ, we see God's pledge that he's ready to have us. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to embrace the otherness of what it means to be a citizen of your kingdom? Would you help us to continue in trust? We thank you for the way that you meet us. In Christ's name, amen.